and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast. A conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. Welcome to episode number 11 of Real Tech, Real Life. Today we're really excited. Uh, we've got Mr. Michael Epner joining us uh, for a bit of an interview. We promise not to haze him too much, um, but he likes to haze us, so... Uh, maybe we'll, we'll haze a bit. So for those that don't know, um, all four of us have worked with Mike uh, in the past uh, when we were we were all at Aperio. Uh, Mike happens to, um, in addition to being a pretty good guy, uh, happens to know a ton about services in the technology world. And, and as we've kind of gone through this uh, list of of uh, different topics in the professional services lifecycle. Full disclosure: we've completely stole uh, stolen the list from from a document that Mike wrote a long time ago that he let some of us work on a bit as well. And uh, so we thought it would be great, first of all, to uh, a lot of our listeners know Mike from previous lives as well. So get to know a little bit more about him and his uh, philosophy on services. And then he's doing some cool stuff now as well that we want to want to talk about in his in his. Uh, semi-retirement. Um, and for those that can't see him, he's got a very short haircut and uh, is looking very relaxed. So we're, we're happy to see that. Just I, too relaxed. <laughs> a little too relaxed, yeah. There's no such thing. <laughs> so, so I tell you what, I'll, I'll kick things off. Um, so Mike, tell us a little bit about your early career. How did you get in technology and services and how on earth did you end up in this world? <laughs> well, I started, uh, I've, I've been technical my whole life. Um, I started as a developer and from, just worked for a couple of years as a developer and moved into management from there and accidentally got put into services. It was it was one of those things where I was trying out different things. I went into pre-sales, was doing the development thing, did a little bit of management, actually even managed a hardware development group, um, and then got assigned into a services group. And at the time it was kind of a shock. I had never done anything with services. And I lasted about six months and said, oh, I'm not sure this is for me. Went off and, and continued to uh, to work in management, but then came back to services. I left, um, at the time I was working at Kodak, um, I left there and went out on my own and started doing consulting uh, in the healthcare space. And uh, and then just fell in love with services. I went there from a, into into a consulting position. was a was a consultant, you know, traveling every week to Detroit, uh, working with General Motors at the time. Um, and uh, and then from there, uh, continued on with with consulting. Doing healthcare res- consulting. Yeah, I was actually doing regulatory consulting, helping people uh, doing doing uh, software that was passing FDA scrutiny. Wow. So protecting people from, uh, yeah, bad software. I had no idea. That's like a whole new world. I didn't either. It was, oh, it was crazy. Yeah, you it all was have crazy. to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Services is complicated. Every, every engagement you do is a different product in many ways, even if you're trying to automate things and, and, and do re, you know, have good reuse. But how did you get such a good understanding of the full life cycle? Well, when I was doing the healthcare consulting, one of the things that they emphasize a ton is is process. And I went and consulted uh, on process in the healthcare field with you know helping people do software according to really good processes. Then I hooked up with uh, a consulting firm called TerraQuest, um, and they did process consulting for the large SI. So folks like EDS, Accenture, IBM. Um, I got to work with all of those organizations and how they were structured, how they did services, their processes, how they measured everything. And that really was a huge education, just being able to see at the top levels of those organizations how they were working. Um, and that really was the, 
the genesis of me, you know, doing doing more with services. Were they typically similar, or were there a lot of differences? Um, they were they were pretty similar. Um, I think each one had their had their special flavor. You know, I think um, Accenture was was very process oriented and very structured. Um, EDS was obsessed with uh, at the time. You know, EDS obviously no longer existing, but at the time they, they were super obsessed with, uh, obsessed with customers. So everything to make the customer happy, um, and so their processes were geared to to you know mobilize if there was a problem or an issue to mobilize to to support that. And IBM obviously built for scale, so their processes were all about scale and how to how to have large groups of people. Uh, to, uh, to be able to adopt a, a set of processes and follow the management guidelines of how they wanted to work. Um, and then late, later on, we got in to working with the Indian firms, so Tata and Wipro and those types of organizations, and they were completely different again, mm-hmm. very metrics-driven, very process-driven. And, uh, and so learning from, from somebody like Tata who you know, measured everything, how much an individual's training impacted how well they would perform out with customers, you know, and correlating those two things was, was just fascinating to see. You were a, you know, a big part of building out the services organization operation uh, at Aperio. And mm-hmm. when you looked at that initiative, I mean, how did you take the different pieces from Accenture, the things you've learned from TerraQuest, Accenture and others? Sure. And how did you take that into uh, the world that Aperio was living in, which was, was more uh, implementation, uh, customization of, of software and that sort of thing? I mean, where, where did you sort of turn the dials on, on the areas to focus? Yeah, I think what was cool about Aperio is we were able to start with a clean slate almost, right? We were able to to design, you know, what do we want the organization ultimately to look like? And you, you can't do everything at once. So you've got to start small and build up to what is a, a scaled organization. And, and, and so looking at, okay, here's where we want to go. You know, let's put the basic things in place that we know we need to, to operate. And so we're having, having Salesforce as an infrastructure, you know, we obviously were, we're able to, to measure a lot of things and, and look at things like utilization and, and time cards and time card efficiency at the very beginning. And that would, that though having data at your fingertips and having consistent enough processes, even if they're basic processes to be able to measure and improve on those processes was a huge, huge thing. And it, and it really, the, the, the metrics uh, really guided every decision that we made when we were, we were running that services organization, you know, everything was run off of one dashboard. We could see exactly what the health of the organization was and, and what things we needed to do based on that one one dashboard, really. By the way, we love the dog barking in the background. <laughs> I, I think and I'm so glad it wasn't mine. <laughs> or one of like, my crazy dogs. I was dogs. sitting here and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, she's not, hopefully she won't bark, but yeah. That's all right. We've already, and then we actually captured earlier today Miriam yelling at her dog or her, her, do- her either <laughs> dog or daughters. I'm not sure which. One of the two. <laughs> Obviously, a services organization is made up of people, right? And that is, people are really the product. That and the processes underneath it. Uh, when you look at starting a services team from from scratch, or even we'll get to maybe morphing one later on. But when you start from scratch, sure. what what do you look for? You know, I think a huge piece of it is you know what are you looking for in your leadership. You know, I think you the, the, one of the key things for me in an organization is it's got to be about more than just you know, coming in, you know, putting your time in, you know, filling out your time card, you know, filling out your documentation, whatever it is you have to do, writing your code, um, you know, having something that people are aspiring to and, and, and wanting to pursue as a goal beyond just, 
know, their individual paycheck. And I think having leaders that can lead in that way, that can be multidimensional and, and really um, inspire the organization as well as provide the leadership on you know, all of the details and, and things that you need to run the organization on a day-to-day -day basis, but keep people feeling really good about what they're doing. It's more than just you know, turning a crank. You know, turning a crank is one of the worst things that that you know just thinking about the organization as a set of metrics um, that you're turning a crank on uh, you know really is it, it doesn't inspire your people when you don't get as much as you possibly can get out of them if you if you lead it otherwise i gotta say mike i i, I know i've said this to you before but you're <laughs> one of the greatest people managers i've ever had and i think um, you I, I don't know what you look for also when you hire people but i think you knew how to pick the right people for the team, but you also are not just giving lip service, the whole idea of inspiring and kind of modeling yourself in a way that folks didn't just come to get a job done. I think uh, it's a testament, all of us sitting here and talking about some of the stuff that you made happen. I think it's a testament that it wasn't a job for us, the experience we all had together didn't really, was way more than coming in, getting our work done, and being done. Uh, but I, I'd love to know, I know that you also were great at cherry picking and finding people out of nowhere. Like if you ever had to hire someone, like Mike is already like looking people up at LinkedIn, sending emails personally. Stalking. When you were hiring PMs. Stalking. Remember, Lori, yeah. I think Mike was sending personal emails yeah, to folks. Regularly. Like, do you think you do that? When we were, when we were uh, hiring all, all those folks, I can remember, I was he was in Dallas at the time I was in San Francisco. I can remember every morning waking up dreading to check my email because there would be three from Mike on, did you follow up with this person? Did you? I know. <laughs> he, was, he was Johnny on the spot when it came to hiring, but uh, go ahead. Mary. I mean, I think it, to me that, that, that was something that I'd never experienced before. And I just love the fact that you didn't wait for a recruiter to go do X, Y, and Z. You were just like in LinkedIn searching, looking. So what do you look for as you grow your team, as you've grown so many teams, what are those key things you look for? I know it went well beyond the skill set because of yeah. folks that I've seen you hire. Like, what do you look for? Yeah, I think you, I mean, you clearly are looking for the basics, the skill set, right? You're looking for people that, that have the technical capability, have the people, you know, capability, the ability to go in and work with a customer and talk about them. But, but they're, they're typically looking for something that's more than just the job, right? You know, if you, you're not just coming into, um, get your next promotion and then move to the, to the next job. And you, and you want to strive. And I, th I do think, you know, that that's a valid way to get ahead in your career. And, and people do do that quite a lot. I do think there's a lot more satisfaction um, when there is a higher thing that you're pursuing or higher goal that you want to have, you know, with working with an organization, whether it's learning, being part of something that um, is diversifying your skill set, expanding your horizons. I think it's looking for people that want to be part of something like that. Um, and usually, you know, when I would do those LinkedIn reach outs, um, it's it's appealing to that side of of people and and reaching out in a way that the people that think that way and feel like they want to be part of something. I mean, one of one of the biggest things that that I would put into a, into a recruiting email as an example or getting somebody to 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 talk to me um, is is talking about where we're going and the things we're aspiring to. We want to be, you know, challenging the large SIs. We want to be. Um, growing at X percent and, you know, things that are, are aspirational. And I think when you get people responding to that sort of inquiry, you, you typically will get the right kind of people. 
Um, and that's that's a huge thing for me. And they want to be team players, right? I mean, they, you, you want people who care about the person sitting next to them, um, not being all about their one individual you know, person in the organization. Lori, you're about to ask something. So, yeah. So beyond building your team with these folks um, that you're finding, how do you then continue to challenge them and give them opportunities that might push them beyond their comfort zone or deal with situations where maybe they're in a role that's not a great fit for them? And, and how, do you, how do you sort of continue that process throughout and, and help with the evolution, not only of the organization, but also of the, the people? Yeah, one of the things that I, I would always emphasize, and I think just probably all of you have heard this from me in the past, is know your people, you know, know what makes them tick, know what, what they want to do. Um, I love putting people in a situation where they don't think they can achieve something, right? They, they, they are over, I always tell them, throw them into the pool, right? And, and they're going to learn to swim if you're there to help them swim. And, and that's the mark of a good manager is being able to um, put somebody into a situation where they will, will or can exceed what they even think they're capable of and then mentoring them through that as they go and do that. You know, um, whether it's somebody who doesn't know sales, you know, put him into a sales role, looking at you, Andrea. Um, <laughs> I'm just waiting to chime in on this because I, in this group, I'm the token sales person. And I, I, going back to that, it was Tom there, Scott, but it was actually you. It's you. Yeah, yeah. the mastermind. I guess what I'm still doing eight years later. And you're still probably really good at it. Apparently, yeah. you saw something in me that I sure as hell didn't instill. Well, but. but that's but that's part of it. I mean, that for me, that was always the most satisfying thing about about leading a services organization is when somebody does exceed you know, what it is they set out to do. And when they do accomplish something that they never thought they were po thought was possible and they just, you know, love something that they never, not that you ever really love sales you know, that much, Andrea, but. Still doing it. <laughs> Full time. But, uh, but it's, uh, you know, that, that's that's the great part of, of running a team and seeing a team, you know, achieve what, what uh, you're setting out to do. Andrea, you want to continue to harass Mike about that? Because uh... <laughs> no, I just, it's funny because I think, you know, I think like we said, we've talked about it somehow. I end up with this token. And if you'd asked me when I joined Aperio, um, if I'd ever end up in sale any time in my career, God, the answer would have been no, but then it really was kind of that driver. And then I think the one thing you kept pushing with me over the years was um, getting well-rounded because I had the delivery knowledge and then kind of putting yep. me into sales and it gave me that sales knowledge. So having that. And the funny thing is, is I, it's like I went in my on in my career and even after I left and, and interviewing this last time, that's not actually a common thing to have, mm -hmm. to have the background in sales and have it in delivery and have it in management. It's been a huge asset to me. Um, but I don't think I ever would have had that vision. Uh, it came from you. <laughs> so, and you blamed Tom Scott three episodes ago. So we're going to blame Mike. Well, <laughs> I, did, I did hear that episode. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Yes, yes, yes. Same, like, let's just tell Tom Scott that he take that credit back. Right. It was <laughs> Mike on that one. I will now forever I'm remember. Mike you know, I think one of, one of the other things that I learned from Mike was not to hire to a box. 
um, to find good people and build the organization around them instead of drawing on the board what you think the boxes should be and try to fill in the dots. Um, and I think um, uh, sort of emotionally and philosophically, I always thought that way, but organizations often don't allow you to do it. Um, and I think that was, you know, one of the, the gifts that I got from Mike was forget the boxes, figure out what it is you're going to have to do as a business and hire good people. And you might have to move them around. Um, but, but make sure that, um, you know, that, that, that you're actually hiring good folks and not just to fit some predefined script that that's been written along the way. Yeah. And it gives them up to have well-rounded people or people that want to be well-rounded, you know, they may not be well-rounded initially, but they want to pursue other things. You know, it gives you flexibility. Lori, uh, Lori A asked, you know, about um, keeping people happy and, and, you know, moving them through their careers. And sometimes the opportunity for someone isn't directly moving into the management role that's right above them. Maybe moving them into a slightly different role where they learn a slightly different skill set. It's a stretch for them. Um, and then mentoring through that, but giving them still a career opportunity to advance and get their title advancement and things that, that are important to an individual as they're you know, looking at their own careers. Um, but then paying attention to that, if something doesn't go right and they are struggling in the role or maybe aren't a good fit for that role. And it was, you know, you don't always get it 100 percent right. You know, being able to take action on that and and help them move into something else beyond that and still feel good about themselves. One of the other things, because when you do that, you're hiring smart people. A lot of them have, you know, strong uh, opinions and probably strong personalities. Uh, not saying that that's true of anyone on this podcast, um, but yeah. <laughs> but one of the the other things. Um, this is not just a. We're not trying to just uh, uh, be nice to you. We're going to be mean to you in a minute. But one of the other things I think that you, you did really well was you took a bunch of. I'll call it the Isle of Misfit toys in some ways. I mean, you took a bunch of people that uh, very different backgrounds, very different personalities, um, and you were able to get them to work together as a team. Uh, and you know, I'm curious, uh, you know, how you did that because we're all trying to figure out how to do that now <laughs> in our new worlds. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what, any, any tips or secrets that you have? Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's challenging. The, the, the key is, is for me is valuing the people that disagree with you. You know, you're going to, you're never going to have a situation. Well, unless you really force it, <laughs> you're never gonna have a situation where everybody thinks exactly the same way. Um, and frankly, for me, the more diverse the opinion sets, the stronger you're going to be because you're going to hear the things that are negative that you can, uh, uh, you know, go after and fix or, or, you know, be able to adapt to things that you didn't really know were wrong. But, you know, the voices of, of uh, disagreement are, are, are coming through, um, you know, so having having diverse viewpoints, having that I, I, the island of misfit toys for me is like the ideal thing. Right. You, you're you're pulling together people with all different backgrounds, all different ways of thinking, getting all their opinions, synthesizing them into something that is a vision for that group and, and pulling them together to pursue that, the goals that, that you as a team set out. You know, one of the things I would, I would do every quarter um, as much as I, as much as I could was get, okay, what are your goals for this quarter for each person on the team and encourage my the management team to do the same thing so that you know exactly what the priorities are for the next three months and you can pursue those and then look back a quarter later or two quarters later at how much you've accomplished. You know, it's inspiring to the team to see that because sometimes the day-to-day -day grind is, is such that you don't really appreciate how much you've accomplished. But if you have those goals and are pursuing them, you, you know exactly where you're going and everybody's lined up with those goals and they feel good about them. What is the thing that when you were going through it, you weren't quite sure 
that you were either doing it right or were afraid it wasn't going to work? Was there any, is there anything that comes out, you know, top of your mind of, oh my gosh, you know, this could really go sideways really quickly? You know, the, the, and I think this is common for any services organization. It's the balance between sales and delivery and how much, how much you, um, are, are restricting sales by trying to be diligent in the, in the sales cycle about what it's going to take to deliver something at the same time, you know, having enough sales and, and inspiration for the customer that, you know, you're not bogging them down into every, every detail in the sales process so that they'll buy from you. You know, you don't, you don't want to be too, too far on the, you know, cavalier side from a sales perspective and not too restrictive on the, on the, uh, on the delivery side. And, and those, those are, that's the constant, am I doing too much? Am I doing it right? Am I doing the, am I balancing it? And I think, just keeping a constant eye on your metrics and, and, uh, and trying to manage through that is, is, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the toughest things in services, I think. Andrea is smiling. I think she would agree too. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's funny. And that's, I I learned that probably at a period more than anywhere is it's exactly that. It's like the sales as a sales team, you have to go out and be able, be able to go out and sell. And if you're bogged down too much about, you know, oh, we can't actually deliver this or this isn't going to happen or that. I mean, you have to have some boundaries, obviously, but you also have to be able to kind of put out that vision and that's what pushes the delivery team. Um, and I learned that quite a bit. And, you know, there was always kind of that mantra, just, you know, go out and sell it and, you know, let us let us figure it out from there. And um, and it's true. I mean, it's if you, if you have a vision to grow and get bigger and get the customers and all of that, you have to be able to do that. But you have to do it in a way that you don't also, also totally harm yourself on the other side. It's also a good place where the diverse opinions or those voices in the organization that may not always agree with you are valuable. You know, if your salespeople start to squawk, if you if you hear a lot of feedback that, hey, you know what, we're we're being too restrictive in uh, in how we're quoting some certain things. You know, that tells you 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 maybe need to let up a little bit on the delivery side, or deliveries complaining that you know these deals are impossible to to implement, and you're hearing from people in the delivery organization about that. You know, it's a it's a good it's a good thing to to pay attention to and react to. You know what you're hearing through the organization. I think along those lines, um, you also have to have a healthy amount of trust between sales and delivery. Um, and yep. you know, I'm I'm curious if you have any uh, uh, words of advice for us on on how to foster that. Um, from the from the delivery perspective, if you're in the consulting organization, it's get out there with the sales team. You know, the, the, the biggest thing for a salesperson is to be able to know that you under, you understand as a delivery person, what they're, what they're trying to do, um, and, and what their customers goals are and that you're, you're attending to those things and you understand it and just being able to talk through some of the, uh, trade-offs that you have to make in the sales process and, and, you know, what your delivery estimate is, the process of doing that with a salesperson raises the trust level with sales hugely, right? Because they're in on the decision-making and they understand the trade-offs. The salespeople aren't, uh, in general, salespeople aren't out there trying to sell something a delivery can't do. They, they're putting time into that customer relationship to develop it so that they have a long-term um, stream of work coming from that customer. The last thing they want to do is intentionally sell a deal that can't get delivered, that they'll never get another deal from that customer, or another engagement with that customer going forward. So, so I think it's recognizing that and recognizing how much this, from a delivery perspective, how much tr- how, being able to to earn 
trust of the salesperson by understanding what they're going through and trying to manage that relationship. Customer relationships are hard mm-hmm. and, and they are out there every day on the front lines trying to, in some cases, represent the viewpoints of multiple people across the organization and, and they feel exposed. And, and so, you know, being there to back them up, always understanding, having them understand um, and be able to translate is, is, is a good thing. As you looked at, um, uh, from a service perspective, taking the different things that an organization is doing and boiling, boiling those into service offerings, uh, where, I mean, where did you start with thinking about these are the service offerings that we're going to have? And, and I realized that, again, in the world that we lived in, there were some very specific types of technologies that we worked with. But you did a, a very good job of kind of leading us through boiling those into actual solutions. I mean, things that we could go to customers and talk about repeatedly. And I'm curious, you know, how you, uh, how you approached it and, and how you, uh, you know, kind of drove us through building a lot of the supporting assets and other things out. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a little bit of art <laughs> and a little bit of science, I guess. Um, you know, it's very much, you know, using some of the the uh, principles folks use with product management and being able to understand where what the customer needs are, what they're trying to do, um, what are customers asking for, what are you seeing showing up in uh, RFPs and quotes and things very you know frequently, and being able to adapt the service offering or any service offering that you're going to put some investment into to that particular um, area. You know, is we, we had one example where we were uh, doing a lot of work in a particular vertical and, and we learned that vertical really well. And the, the natural thing to make it really easy on the salespeople was to take all that vertical knowledge and the, the processes that went along with implementing a system inside of that vertical area and packaging it up. And it made the sales process easy, it made the customer feel like you had a really good handle on that particular area, made it easy for them to buy. And, and honestly, it made it easier for the delivery people because you had a set of assets then to back that up. They said, okay, here's the things you need to do. Here's the flow charts when you're going in to implement your system or solution inside of that particular vertical area. And I think it, it's just paying attention. And, and honestly, from a management perspective, Setting about setting a little bit of investment aside to proactively do that. You know, if everything's always by the seat of your pants, where you're making it up as you go along, you're never learning from what you've done in the past. It's never going to get any better, and it's never going to be easier when you're dealing with customers. If you put a little bit of investment into those areas um, and build out some assets, it, it really does help. And I think to adding the dis you know, the discipline of of doing that. I mean, it's really easy to do, especially as an organization's growing to just keep trying to go to the next thing and not try yeah. to take a step back and say, okay, well, this is what we've done before. This is how we can evolve that to uh, something that is repeatable, something that is, is um, uh, you know, new in the market. Um, but there's a discipline with that. And it's hard to do, especially when there's, you know, easy, low-hanging fruit um, out there to go do the, the same thing over and over. So I, we go ahead, Miriam. I think uh, it is hard to do, but I think acknowledging the importance of investing the time and money that's needed for folks other than the people who are doing the work to identify those areas and build it out. And I think something that Mike said earlier, the people, when you hire people who think beyond their jobs, 
they're highly motivated to want to do those kinds of things. Like, let me make an asset out of it. And I think we had we were we had the luxury at a period. We were very fortunate to have a lot of folks who thought that way. It was it was important to them to take what they build and do something bigger mm-hmm. with it. So I think. Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be a massive effort. I mean, we right. we had a um, you know that vertical example, we pulled everybody out of the field that had capabilities in that area for a week, you know, which is, a, it's a huge cost and huge investment to, to be able to, you know, pull, let's say eight people out of the field that are key knowledge, you know, they're, they're some of your best people, um, you know, they have key knowledge that, that will contribute to this sort of effort, but you pull them in, you get that, get that and have a very strong facilitated session to, to walk through and build out those things that, that, are the assets or directions that you need to, to be able to productize a particular service offering. Um, and you, you get that out of the week, but almost as important, you get participation from these key folks. They get to spend time together, uh, exchange information, knowledge, um, get motivate each other and get excited about it. And, and that went, you know, we, we had excitement that lasted months after that yeah. about that particular area just, just because we spent that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does. It makes a huge difference. That's for sure. There's so much value, especially like in a sales cycle, to go in and, and to a customer and say, you know, we know your industry. You know, we've done this before. We know yep. how it works. We know all of these things. And particularly in the type of consulting I think we did at Aperio where we weren't industry specific. We were across all industries. Um, so you were constantly like, you know, one day at, at this type of place. And, and so to be able and having to learn along the way. So to be able to go in and already have a strong knowledge and deep knowledge of their business and their industry and, and examples of where we've done that before. I mean, it's night and day on on how much how how much how well the sales cycle will flow and the delivery. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that that yin and yang between sales and, and delivery is always hard, and I think it has to be calibrated constantly back and forth. Um, but to your point, it, it's a conversation. I mean, sales has to sell, um, delivery has to deliver, and you, and if delivery is not listening to the sales, they're not going to be able to to morph your product in a way that is market uh, market ready. Um, and if sales isn't li- listening to delivery, um, then you're going to end up with things that unhappy customers. And, and, you know, that's, that's something I think that, that we, that I, you helped us, I think, drive through, um, uh, very constructively at a point that, that a business is growing really fast. I mean, th- those are three things to throw together that, um, are, are, can be painful. So, um, I definitely want to talk about your photography, but before I do have one last question, um, I have one last question okay. too. So I have one last. Oh, everybody has a last question. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to let Miriam go first. I know. Uh, I, you know, I think we've talked about all the various aspects of a services organization. I think the customer side is one thing that I know that uh, my, I've watched Mike deal with some very difficult situations, uh, difficult customers. I, I love the way, I love the fact that you're a great listener because that's something that uh, I can learn from. Uh, but I, I, I I know you take the time to understand the problem and jump in and work with a customer, especially in those difficult situations. Um, what tips do you have? I mean, like, what are those things that you did as you worked through those difficult customer situations that you felt was critical in getting things back on track? Um, I think putting yourself into the into your customers. Um, mindset, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. It always helps to understand what situation the customer is in inside of their own organization. Who who are they reporting to? Who are they concerned about? How Who's rating their performance? 
you know, how are they going to be seen inside their organization and understanding how what you're doing as a service or services organization or as the consulting team that's in there is influencing or impacting that. You know, if you're um, constantly late to meetings and, and being on time to meetings is a huge issue with that particular customer, you know, obviously there's some corrective action you can take there the, to make things work a lot better. You know, it's a simplistic example, but but it's paying attention and understanding how how well you're fitting in with the culture. I think it's a fine line too. You, you, you wanna always support your team, right? Your team can never feel like you're always going to take the customer side or that the customer is always right. They need to understand that you're going to, you're going to, you know, contemplate the situation and make the, the decisions that are the right decisions for the customer and for the team, but that not everybody's going to, you know, there's no winner, right? It, it, it's not always going to come down on the side of, of the, the, the consulting team and having them have the trust and faith and understanding that you're not just doing that, you know, at their expense, that there truly are issues that have to be fixed. And when customers see that you take action based on their feedback and you do that in a timely fashion, which is a huge thing, doing it quickly, then they feel like things are on the right track and they will give you more leash um, to continue to make the improvements you need in order to keep them happy. You know, and, and I think that's the key thing. When you get into an escalation situation, the customer is escalated because they want the problem fixed. They're not escalating because they want to punch somebody in the nose or that they want to, you know, take out their frustrations. They want it fixed. So you've got to get their confidence that you're going to take the steps and, and you know, take some action to help mitigate the issues that you're having. Um, I think that's a huge that's a huge thing in getting credibility and and getting them to, uh, to uh, you know, de-escalate things a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And it is definitely that trade-off. You've got to make sure the team feels supported. But at the same time, there's clearly something that needs to be addressed and trying to, to mediate, if you will, um, to get that done. And, and it um, uh, certainly can be stressful, but uh, you always handled it very gracefully most of the time. No, I'm kidding. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you talking to, me or Mike? <laughs> no, not to you, Mary. <laughs> I know. I'm always the graceful one. <laughs> Lori, you had a question for Mike? I did, yeah. So we've talked a lot about taking care of people and, and navigating tough customer situations and growing a business. And, and you know, I'm sure this will segue into, into the photography specifically. But before we get there, like, how do, you, how do you generally take care of yourself as a leader? And how do you, um, you know, do that work-life balance thing? And, you know, we talked a lot about it being a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Did you find yourself being very intentional about that? And what was, you know, where were the periods where you were more successful at that than others? And, and what advice would you have for that? Yeah, that's, 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 that's a Lori question. It's I breathe. Um, anyway, so, are you um, mindful? Let's listen to our mindful, podcast. Yes. I have. Um, so, yeah, it's a huge, huge thing. I think as a there, there every leader or every person, you know, in, that, that is taking on more responsibility in an organization gets to the point where you can't take anything on. You have no more time to give. Right. And, and you have to understand what those boundaries are. And, and um, you know, it's, it sounds easy, but, but if you take something new on, you have to, you have to take something off the plate and, and set very firm boundaries. You know, for me, one of the things that, that I was religious about 
was that there was a certain time of night, whether it's six, six thirty, whatever, that I would stop and it was done. I wouldn't check my phone. I wouldn't check my any more email. I had to break and get a couple of hours of of away time from the day to day in order to just recharge. And same thing for the weekends. You know, the the management team knew, you know, come Friday night, we didn't email until Monday morning for the most part, unless there was emergency situations that we were trying to deal with and setting the expectation with the organization that the weekends are for recharging and for getting yourself back in order. And I think having that as a, as a way of life and getting your organization or people or, or, or colleagues to adopt a similar way of working is healthy for everybody. Nobody wants to be working on weekends. And, and I think the more that you can force that situation, the stronger your organization will be ultimately. You know, people will go to the wall when they have to, but the day to day never getting your head out of the work and doing other things is, a, is uh, ultimately you're going to burn out. And, and you know, we see it time and we would see it time and time again where we have to pull somebody aside and coach them through, you know, here's the steps you need to to take in order to um, you know, get yourself back on track. What, uh, so I, one last question, we want to talk about your photography, but, um, you were a, you know, a big part of, of our careers, a big part of, uh, uh, you know, building up an organization. What are you most proud of, um, in your career? Uh, I am most proud of, um, I, uh, for me, from a personal perspective, uh, I'm, I am most proud of the impact that I've had on the people around me. You know, it was always a when I started working in services and working with um, you know larger organizations, it was always about how many people can I touch and impact um, in tangible ways. And and I feel like in the course of my career, I've had a great opportunity to impact a lot of people and and really help them move forward. And I think from a personal pride perspective, seeing what the team, I mean, what you guys have done, the four of you, you know, post Aperio, what other people that I've worked with. Um, at a period have gone on to do and, and um, accomplish and achieve is, is, and, and knowing that I had some maybe small piece in, in helping them at some point in their careers is, is hugely rewarding. Um, and certainly one of the things that I value the most in, in, uh, in where I've gone. So let's talk about the photography. How did you start doing sure. this? Um, and for those that are listening, we'll, we'll put some links on, uh, on our website so you can see it. I mean, uh, the, not only is, uh, uh, what he's doing very cool and, uh, but it's also, it's really different. I mean, how did you get into the photography world to begin with? And then second, the, the type of photography yeah. that you're doing. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I started photography when I was in college. I, I loved it. I've always been into imaging, you know, when I, uh, when I was in college, I managed to get a, I wrote a really nice essay and got a scholarship from Kodak and went to work for Kodak. And, you know, I was just image obsessed through, through um, pr pretty much all of my career. I've been very much into photography and imaging. Um, so it was always the, the release valve for me to go off and do photography as a balance to the demands of, you know, services and consulting and management, all of those types of things. Um, of late, so I'm, I'm pretty much right now in a mode where I'm doing it full time. And, and uh, the stuff that I've been doing recently was really, um, I'm doing scanner-based photography, which is pretty unusual. Um, there aren't a whole lot of people that are using a scanner to take pictures, if you will. Um, and I came upon it accidentally. I started messing around with the scanner and started having some cool things happen. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm producing images that, you know, are, are, uh, are, are seem to be doing pretty well or, or 
are being liked. So, uh, I actually, you know, that's kind of what I'm doing. I now. assumed your first one was you spilled coffee on the scanner and accidentally scanned it. <laughs> is that, is that not what happened? Uh, it was not, uh, <laughs> it wasn't coffee, but it was something. Yes. And I, and I fried my first scanner. So but, I had to go know, back. I have a hard time visualizing what the process is like. You really should create a short video. Maybe make it create a simple a sample of it because it's so unique, but I just, I can't, I can't even imagine. How do you take a picture of the scanner? Like, so I'm trying to. Well, it's scanning. I mean, I'm using the scanner to produce the image. So it isn't, it isn't. But how do you make it even, I mean, I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know what I don't know. So I'd love to see a video. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm, I do a lot of work with liquids on the scanner, so I'm putting liquids and different types of pigments and inks and all sorts of um, colors, if you will, on the scanner. And the way they react and work together is, is what produces the images. And I use objects in, in there as well, so things like flowers and thorns and tree limbs and all those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the effect is how those things interact and the, the interactions that happen over a long period of time. You know, I'll leave something on the scanner potentially for days um, and add more to it. It's, it's, uh, it's what produces the images. It's fun. And what is that creative process like for you? Like, are you, are you sort of thinking through and sort of intellectualizing um, how these things might work together? Or do you just get into this mode where you're just sort of going, it's sort of, unfolding before you and you're sort of the vehicle? It's a bit of both. Um, you know, there's always the, I'm walking along and I think of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And then I'll go home and try it and, and you know, the, the spontaneity of it. Um, and then there's other times where it's, okay, I'm going to try this and put this on there and follow by this. And and there's a process that that uh, that I'll follow to do it as well. Sometimes, you know, sometimes neither one of those works. Sometimes they both work. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, you know, one of those, I will produce probably a thousand images to get to 10. Wow. Wow. Um, so it does take, it does take some attention to, to stay on top of it. So do you name the pieces, the work after the fact, or you kind of come up with the name? Yeah, name? generally, generally, after. I mean, the work, the work tends to take you where, you know, you have ideas about where, what, where, what do you want to do and how you want the work to, to, uh, um, look and you go through that and hopefully you get what you want. And then you sort of see, well, what does that look like to me? And then you name it based on that. Do you try to do themes? But there's definitely, con there's definitely concepts behind it. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. There's themes. Yep. So serious. So, and, and I have, um, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah. I mean the, the current piece, the current body of work that I'm working on is something that I call frames of mind. And it's, it's, uh, every image it has, a frame in it of some kind. So if you look through the, if you go to my website, you'll see that, that area. And I use the frames intentionally um, to, you know, say particular things or to um, have a particular look inside the image that I'm trying to accomplish. And I have to confess that the, when you talk about this, I immediately go to how on earth does he clean the scanner? <laughs> my first your oh, I to see a video, right? You're doing exactly the things we'd really yell at our kids for doing. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's so great. <laughs> is it hard? I mean, because no. you, you, I mean, and do you have a special scanner? It's Windex. It's Windex. <laughs> it's Windex. I'm telling you. So you've only fried well, one you. scanner this whole time. I've only fried. Well, yes, I fried one scanner. I learned how to fix that, and. Uh, <laughs> And so now I don't fry it anymore. That's Mike, other pe uh, are there other people out there who are doing this? Or this is a Mike Epner special? 
There are a handful. Um, I had not seen anybody before I started doing it. I, it was one of those things that I, I just came across and started doing it. And then I found since then um, a few people that, that are doing it out there. And um, I actually went to the Dallas Museum of Art a couple of months ago and there was a woman who had an exhibit and all of her work was done on a scanner, which was really, really cool to see. It wasn't the same sort of things. It was, you know, she was putting her face on the scanner. So it wasn't quite. I well, have, I have an interesting one. And, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I've seen other people do other stuff with scanners. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, none of the, none of the copy stuff. <laughs> Leave it to Miriam to take us to the gutter. But, hey, you yeah. know, again, I want to see a video so that I can visualize it better. That's all. And so you've actually gone through the process of uh, going to shows and getting people to critique, uh, critique your work. And yeah. Oh, how, yeah. how hard is that? Oh, it's devastating. It's just, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's devastating. It's good. It's, you know, it's one of those, those roller coaster rides that you, I guess, get used to over a period of time. But, um, you know, you, one day you'll get an acceptance, like, um, and you'll feel really good. And then the next day you'll get a rejection and you'll feel like you're, you know, terrible, right? No one's ever going to, no one's ever going to want to see this stuff again. <laughs> and you just try and balance that and realize that, you know, 50, if you get to 50% of the time where you're, you're getting into a show or being accepted, that's a good thing, but it's not anywhere near that. It's probably more like 20%. Wow. Um, but fortunately I've got a group of friends who were also photographers and we all commiserate and, and I have a, a, a friend, a photographer friend and every show that she enters, I will often enter. If I get in, she won't get in. If she gets in, I won't get in. It seems to be the way it works, but it's, it's, uh, but it's, it's a, it's very, there are very interesting similarities between the art world and the business world that I've come to appreciate. So, <laughs> And you, you had a, a piece that was actually on the cover of a book recently, right? I did. I, I had a, um, it was a, a group um, in Cincinnati called Manifest Gallery and they publish a international photography annual. So every year they put out a, you know, here's a survey of photography that is, um, you know, good this year's best photographs. And I ended up on the cover of one of those, those annuals, which is pretty cool. And then yesterday I just got notified that I'm in the, I, I, uh, I'm in the next annual. So I got into Ooh, the new yeah. annual as well. So pretty fun. So I feel good today. Cause I got in yesterday. I'll probably get, re <laughs> <laughs> probably get rejected tomorrow and feel. Like <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, good. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I think, um, we've all been thanks looking for forward to me. this and, um, uh, not just because of, okay. uh, uh, the, the boring work topics that we talk about, but also because of the cool stuff that you've done afterwards. And, <laughs> and congratulations on the podcast. It's really fun and, and really enjoyed listening to it. And, and you guys are, I'm, I'm excited to see where you guys take it. So, so you've listened to a couple. So how much have we yeah. embarrassed you with our lack of knowledge? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's a 50-50 game. We <laughs> trusted. <laughs> Except yeah, for me, I, I, I erroneously calling out Tom Scott. But you know why I realize that now? He was the one that actually sat down with me and told me you were behind pulling the strings. So See, that's what is the sign of a good leader? That was always my secret. I mean, you know, to, to get other people right. to, to do that. So, uh, but isn't and that the, the sign of a good leader is that, you know, to all of us. they're behind the scenes. They're not out front, you know, taking all the credit and the glory, right? That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. But uh, anyway, so thanks. Thanks for joining. Thanks for all you've done to help us over the well, years and uh, look forward to having <laughs> you back next time. Um, uh, you know, maybe you can show us how you clean the scanner. We'll make it a video. <laughs> we hope you'll join us again on an upcoming episode, but in the meantime, visit our website at 
realtechreallife.com. Check out our episode guide and leave us comments and feedback and questions that you'd like to have us answer in future episodes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.